0: To be transformed, to turn yourself inside out like a glove, to spin like a planet, to thread yourself through yourself, so that each day penetrates each night, so that each word runs to the other side of truth, so that each verse comes out of itself and gives off its own light, so that each face leaning on a hand sweats into the skin of the palm, so that this pen changes into pure silence. I wanted to say into love to fall off a horse, to smear your face with dust, to be blinded, to lift yourself, and allow yourself to be led like blind Saul to Damascus. Transformation by Anna Kamienska. Welcome to Becoming Human episode number... I I don't know. Uh, I actually don't know what episode number this is, partly because I'm just too lazy to look it up right now, which is probably not great to admit on a show called Becoming Human. Kind of takes away from my authority and esteem, I suppose. But hey, I'm on the journey, too. I'm I'm not here prescribing things down to you all. I'm inviting you to go with me, right? I'm trying to uncover tools to help us live better and build a better world, and I'm just sharing with you what I'm discovering. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out as well. On today's episode, though, we are going to finally talk about how we change how it works so let's get into it let's learn let's grow and let's become a little bit more human so we've set all of the groundwork for this idea we've talked about the reality of change we've talked about how we should be interacting with change And then we got into some of the first processes of having a destination, and then this idea that dealing with change is like dealing with gravity. We are creatures of orbit. Or to put it another way, change is like a graveyard. You don't get any help from the inside. So how do we break from the default homeostasis and resistance that seems so natural to us so that we can begin moving towards our destination. It's like a spaceship breaking orbit. That's the ground that we had to set up because that's a big part of the process that if you avoid, it's going to make everything else harder. So we're going to function by talking about how change works from the perspective of how do we deal with these very natural dispositions that we already have. So now we're finally going to be able to articulate the technical process of change. But remember, it starts with destination, and then you have to acknowledge the obstacles, and that makes the rest of this possible. Those two parts that we've already done work in conjunction with what we're about to talk about, and it can only come after you've done those first two steps, the destination and the obstacles, or or dealing with resistance. So now we find how this actually works. And the basic way to frame it is that there's two parts shift and transition. Now, shift, we've already technically done because that first step of destination is very similar. So I just want to elaborate on what else is going on here. And if you haven't listened to the episode, definitely encourage you to go back. But how do you move from drifting along the route to an intentional trajectory? And this is the first step in moving in a new direction. It begins with understanding why you are moving in the first place. So not only are you setting a teleological goal, you're also naming the important foundation of why you're even doing this. Because if we were left to our own devices, as we saw with all of the components of resistance, we will continue in as much familiarity as possible and allow the change of the world to dictate itself onto us. And so whatever change you are interacting with, from an addiction to an organization or social cultural values, the first step here, we have to admit, is not in the details. In fact, This first step of shifting doesn't have any tangible action to it. Shift is simply about deciding where you actually want to go because it sets up the process. So let me take you to Sweden. It's September 3rd, 1967. And Sweden drives on the left side of the road. Now, problem, they're in a Nordic region where... Most of the other places are driving on the right side of the road. And so in order to go through an international exchange, you had to go through this complex series of movements to switch sides. Foreign drivers coming in are now maneuvering a vehicle not designed for their roads. Lots of problems. And so Sweden decides to make a change. Now, you can probably guess the amount of infrastructure required to make this change would be a really great case of resistance, the lack of familiarity, the loss that everybody's going to have, not just mentally with that's the way they've always driven, but none of those cars are going to be able to work anymore, and the slow, difficult process that awaits any kind of macro change such as this. The transportation overhaul was put up to a public vote, which illuminates a shift was made. By putting that out into public, by naming that directive, that now set the stage for where they were intending to go. It painted a picture of that destination. Now, as soon as they did this, obviously it threatens a disruption to the norm. And given the option, people in voting resisted, and they shot down the vote. So it didn't work. So then Sweden moves to option number two. They announced in their governmental authority that they were going to make the change anyways. So they made a decision about the people without submitting to the people's input. Very interesting take there. And by the way, this brings up a whole situation If any time you're dealing with, uh, if you remember Ernie Brofenbrenner's bioecological systems theory, you're dealing with the mesosystem or the exosystem or the macrosystem. You're not just making decisions based on you. It involves un- other people. And you have to decide how you're going to involve those other people. Making decisions about other people without including them can be a problem. At the same time, you have a quote from a guy like Henry Ford who says, if I would have listened to my customers, I would have never invented the automobile. There's an interesting balance when you're talking about change, especially when it involves larger groups of people from the interpersonal to the group, to the public, to the mass. How do you need to interact with them? And there's sort of a spectrum that exists of full inclusion, very democratic, but then you have the problem of resistance, that people typically will not go along with anything that changes. Then you have the tyrant, which is going to make the change more possible, but the resistance will find its way into that reality sooner or later. Figuring out that balance, especially if you're in a position of leadership, is a really interesting one to navigate. And there's something to be said about uh, being a half step ahead of wherever you're trying to take people. And uh, I'm talking mostly from organizational leadership here now, but being able to lead is inviting your group or your organization or even your family into uncharted territory, which we will naturally resist. If you as a leader are far too ahead, like you're three miles ahead on the trail, we don't know where we're going and now we can't trust your voice. However, if you're right next to us, we're all probably just going to stand there and and we're not going to get pulled into a new direction. If you're taking people into uncharted territory, go along with the delicate balance of being a half step ahead. You have to have a ton of trust. You're asking people to do something that naturally goes against every inclination of their minds and bodies and souls. But you still have to keep moving things in that direction, or else you're going to be tempted to drift, to not interact with the change well and therefore change poorly, or you're going to try to remain in a landscape that doesn't exist anymore. Sweden decides to just go for it. They take option number two, and now they have the problem of resistance. So if you think back to the conversation on destination, Sweden makes the single decision. They say, this is who we are, and that becomes the affirmation and the goal that's now going to give them the constraints for where they're going to go next. It's that goal that then informs the plans and the actions to follow. They've done that, and it was a quick pulling out of the rug so it's an internal goal that now sets the identity and trajectory of where their future is headed, but they still have this problem of resistance. So talking about the roads, a destination is envisioned and it becomes it becomes the lens through which they have to see things. Uh, and you think on that teleology episode, that's what they did. Now, it's really interesting to actually read about this story and the ways they invited people to come along with the change. Um, and, uh, like they had these, these, uh, competitions for people to name, uh, how things were going to happen and to come up with like mottos and advertising for the change. And they, they allowed people to have avenues that were accessible to buy in. But that's the idea of shift is we simply go, this is where I am and this is where I'm going. And you have to do that up front. Now, let's get a little bit more technical. This is actually called the trans-theoretical stages of change. And um, by all means, you you can go up, uh, look this up, and and find more details about everything. But in the trans-theoretical stages of change, what we just articulated is the first step, which is called pre-contemplation. Pre-contemplation is the destination, it's the shift where you name your trajectory, your goal of where you want to go. You sense a problem or a need for improvement and you allow it to surface and you make it real. Pre-contemplation in making a shift is about you waking up. It's about you going, okay, here I am and a different future is possible. Now you can only know that different future is possible if you've done the work of destination that we've talked about before. But once you've done this and you can see that possibility, now the results of pre-contemplation are visible and you can move into the second step, which is contemplation. So pre-contemplation becomes contemplation. Pre-contemplation is where this thing didn't exist previously in your head. Now you've taken time to set a destination, see this teleological framework. Now it does exist in your head. And now you can actually consider the possibility of making it real. So that's pre-contemplation and contemplation. You take the recognition, which has surfaced, and you begin to see the benefits of it. So let's put this into uh, an example that uh, I'm a little bit familiar with, which would be addiction. So there's a certain part of the addict's life where there's no sense that anything's wrong. There's no desire for things to be different. And then a moment happens, usually this is what the um, addict and recovery world calls complete desperation. Something happens where they go, I don't think it should be this way anymore. At that moment, they see a different possibility. Now, in that stage, which is pre-contemplation, there's still no desire to pursue that possibility. It simply exists now. Once the addict then goes, And here's all of the things that would be better if I actually did this. Now we're in contemplation. You're seeing the benefits of that new trajectory. Now, this is still part of the shift because no action has happened yet. It's only become a more real option for you. But that is incredibly important if we're going to sustain the actual process the destination begins taking on a form in your mind that's going to compel your your decision towards its actuality. Uh, so let me give you another example of this. If every time I sit on my couch while my children are playing, I always take out my phone and unconsciously open some sort of social media and just begin mindlessly scrolling, that's a default situation. Now, something would need to happen, most likely it would be confrontational, where I begin to have the thought of, whoa, I use my phone a lot. Then that begins to move to, so that's pre-contemplation of, you know, what if I didn't do this every time I sat on the couch with my children? Then it moves to, my phone usage might be a problem. If I didn't do this, what would the benefits be? All of that is more likely to occur. The shift in thinking is more likely to occur if you have set a teleological vision for what your life ought to be like. You're more apt to see these discrepancies between the ideal and reality. So that's why you need to go through that process, but that's what's happening with pre-contemplation and contemplation. Now, at this moment, you're still going to resist the change. Like I said, no action has happened. So what does the addict then need to do to start moving towards sobriety? What would I need to do in order to start creating physical changes in how I interact with my phone? This is why change usually stops at contemplation because it is often here that the resistance takes over if you never do the work of considering a different destination, of considering that human movement forward, well, then you're never going to actually enter pre-contemplation or contemplation. You're never even going to have the option of the shift. Once you have that destination, the shift becomes possible. Now we have to deal with what we dealt with last episode, resistance, because it's very common for us to see possibilities and never actually take any movement. We go, we're gonna get in the car, we're gonna drive from Ohio to California, and you create the plan, you have these grand schemes, you, you've poured over all the details, but you never pull the trigger. It's like those desert monks that we, we, we showed their story last time. And they come up with the plan and then they just, it never even happens. So while pre-contemplation and contemplation as informed by having a teleological destination is super important and you have to start here, that can't be the end. No change is going to actually manifest if you only do that. It's easier to maintain what has been normal. And those three reasons of resistance will win out in the end. We have to be honest about the difficulty of the work that lies ahead of any physical, mental, emotional change manifesting in our lives. Because think about it, you you have all of those reasons of resistance, but also getting to your current normal, your current homeostasis, it required some change. There's years and years of picking up the phone and getting so used to the dopamine hits that you can't imagine life without it. So making this change, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to cost you something. It will be hard because it breaks away from the homeostasis that you've developed over a lot of time, right? So think about Sweden. You might agree that if your country is surrounded by countries that drive on the right side of the road, which is the kind of cars the automobile industry is primarily making, that change would have benefits. Contemplating that, that's Once we do the work of setting that in front of us, that's pretty easy to do. But the enormity of the task ceases progress once you begin to think about how you're actually going to pull this off. Ideas are really easy to allow to exist in the ether. Bringing them into reality is a whole other component. Yet, if you don't have the pre-contemplation recognizing the need or benefit for the change, and contemplation, deciding that you are going to move towards that destination, then the details, the action, the logistical plan won't be rooted in anything that will maintain that movement over time and resistance will still win in the end. So this is why that second step of the process, after we went, okay, let's let's be honest about how change is happening in the world, It's so important to acknowledge the resistance up front because whether it's in the pre-contemplation and contemplation side of the shift or whether it's in the rest of the practical action in the transition, resistance is playing a role. And and we have to be able to recognize those in every part of the process. And so you got to start with, okay, what's your goal? What informs where you want to go? You got to shift towards that. Allow that to exist in front of you. And once you have that operating system for who you want to be, once you've gone, all right, in 10 years, what I want my life to look like. Once you've asked, all right, why do I exist? Why is the world the way it is? And what am I going to do about it? It And that's that whole combination that dance partners of philosophy and ethics. Once you've formed that, now we can start with a well-constructed plan. But if you don't have a larger identity to guide the details, it's also going to fail. We need both of these things. You can start with a great idea. This is the problem of New Year's resolutions. But willpower is not enough, and it will fizzle into nothing. Well-crafted vision statements aren't enough, and neither are well-crafted plans. You need ideation and execution. You need the shift and the tradition. You need to begin with the goal and the vision, the reset of your identity, because it alters your internal environment. It creates the conditions for change to even be possible in the first place. But then, once you have the destination, we actually need to alter your external environment. Once you've done the internal work, doing the external work is possible. You need to shift but then you need the transition. Like I think, not not to make this like too spiritual for you people who are against religion or anything, but the famous line from Jesus before his death, I think really works here. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Positive thinking isn't enough. It's going to inform the habits, but the habits are important too. So once we've Done the shift, which includes the trans theoretical stages of change, which are pre contemplation and contemplation. Now we have to move into the actual steps that unfold the process. So you've decided you are going to clean your room. Now, how are you going to do that? You're going to transition here from one war- norm to a new norm. You've intentionally seen the destination, you committed to it, but now what? And like I said, we need to externally condition the internal decision. and We have to have a plan. Now, the obstacles are a huge part of the plan. And most of the uh, tactile things you're going to need to do are simply going to be a response to the obstacles of resistance that we've already taken the time to acknowledge. That's why that was so important. But particularly reminding yourself that however you got here was a very long, difficult process that's now quite entrenched in your identity, like uh, Edward de Bono's example of the river. That's going to be important too. Like think about, so neurologically, you have this myelin sheath, this neurological coding that has been built up every time you made a decision. If you're going to now rewire your neurological norms, It ain't just going to happen on its own. It took thousands of decisions for you to get here where you are. And now you've also got the problem that this is going to disrupt your predictability and stability. It's going to be a loss of how you've known things to be, and it's going to be a slow and difficult process. So that brings us to the third step of trans-theoretical stages of change. And this is the first step that's actually active. And it's to make a plan with your obstacles in mind. And there's some technical stuff for how to to do this. It's not just sitting down with a pen and paper and drawing something up. That's contemplation. Creating a plan is actually about altering your external circumstances. So setting up an infrastructure for your life is really important here. And again, I want you to think about this. You might have something right now where you're like, this is a change I want to see. And it could be like a personal habit or a lifestyle decision or a relational issue. But this could also be like social change. And if you look at the history of social movements, they use this same process. But somehow you have to trick yourself uh, or, or the dominant norm, if we're talking about a more macro um, system situation, you have to trick yourself by taking you out of the equation. You have to set up conditions that will not be you relying on the norms that you've built up. And this is the most difficult part, uh, but this is actually the easiest part because if you commit to it and you do it, uh, you've actually overcome most of the ways that resistance is going to rear its ugly head. The second thing you need to do in setting up infrastructure is to create very tangible and measurable movements in your plan. So it's no longer just, I want to do this. Th- those are vision statements, right? Absolutely necessary. Okay, they root the whole process. They're, they're going to be what's going to sustain this thing. But now these, these next steps, the things that you're going to conceive of, they have to be tangible and measurable, the third part of creating infrastructure here is to have a goal to make the change easier than your current state by creating particular conditions. And I want to offer uh, six different ways to approach this. Uh, So there's several components that I mean, we we just need to name that these are things in order to do this part well because it's the most complex part. And uh, the thing with the phone actually happened to me and uh, where I, I just noticed, I was like, I'm, I'm on my phone a lot. And I had set up this uh, lifestyle decision where I was kind of going, I see the problems with social media. I see the problems with technology. I can see the effects that it's having because I have this particular teleological understanding of uh, what it means to be human and and what this does to the world. So I was able to recognize this problem. And one of the things that I did to take myself out of the equation, to give me a, a way to measurably see a difference and to make the change easier than my current state was I got rid of the phone. And, uh, this is the age of smartphones. And so what I did was I bought a flip phone and I got rid of, of my smartphone. So now if I wanted to, uh, use my phone while being in the same room as my family, the only thing I could do was like do the tip calculator or use T9 to text people. Like, do you remember that? What ended up happening was it wasn't even convenient or enjoyable for me to have my phone. And my phone ended up just taking a permanent spot on my desk where if I needed to contact somebody, I had it, but I had no reason to carry it around anymore. Making that change was easier. But let's look at the six components because whatever you're trying to work with, that's going to be a different situation. So look at these as sort of principles that you then have to figure out in your context with your situation, you have to make decisions on. And again, whether you're talking about individual stuff with you, relationships, community, economy, social, cultural, ecological, any of that, uh, these all work. So the first component is to Create triggers to design your context to prompt the change as natural. So, you want to work out every morning, just as an example. All right, so what are triggers you can do so that becomes more likely and develops the new habit? Remember, you've got how many days of myelin sheath building up where you don't work out. And that's, that's the static space in which you dwell. Eventually you do this enough. It's going to become really normal and it's going to become the new norm. And it's going to be a positive one closer to your goal, but you have to set that up. So for some people I've seen uh, the technique of putting out workout clothes so that when you wake up, you're going to put those on instead of other clothes because Any excuse you can give yourself, you're probably going to take advantage of. But if you've put on workout clothes or you set up your workout station, if you're working out in your house uh, the night before, you're more likely to do it. So what are some triggers that you can set up so that making that decision is easier than maintaining your current disposition? Another really important part is having rewards. And I know this sounds like cheating, and we kind of want to have this like, "No, we're tough. we can do this. This stop. It, there's no harm in the reward, and what you're actually doing is conditioning yourself. And I know none of us want to be compared to Pavlov's dog here, but we kind of are. And I don't think conditioning should be the way we approach everything, but in situations where we're trying to change behavior, where we're trying to make things different, we got too much working against us, too many obstacles for us to think that we're just going to overcome this with uh, mind power alone. Rewards are helpful, and they don't have to be like weird rewards. It can be very natural things. So sometimes it's um, this thing that I really like, I'm going to allow myself to do because I did this. That's fine. But sometimes the rewards can just be natural consequences, which is a more evolved form of conditioning that is just as helpful anything you can do to make the the change behavior desirable through positive benefits that's going to catalyze your disposition towards changing and and if you can have some sort of sensation or experience that's going to in, encourage the positive and negate the negative why not do it so so think about what rewards can be and they can be trite and trivial and whatever. Um, but the more you can make it a natural consequence of I did this thing and now this is the result. Um, that's really helpful. All right. Third component is motivation or anticipation. Somehow you have to understand what the positive effects and benefits are are of this change. And when you do the change behavior or you, you inch a little closer on that step, Uh, taking the time to acknowledge how this is different. So to use the uh, addict example, you get through a day without a drink. Acknowledging what benefits you notice as a result of that is really important. And and you see this in the addict community, one day at a time. Go one day at a time. Why go one day at a time? Because if you try to emphasize a very long-term goal, and that's the only thing driving you through this day. You're less likely to be held up by it. And so having uh, something that reminds you of, yes, this is the motivation. This is what I anticipated when I was in the stage of contemplation. And now I'm actually getting a small taste of that. That's, that's, a, that's another really important component. Now, one that I think is unfortunately one of the most powerful is social cohesion, Social comparison, our relationship to other people, is one of the most powerful things in human consciousness. If you can make your change have positive social benefits that can give you approval, not from strangers, mostly from people you love and you trust and who are looking out for your best interest, making it public in that way and having accountability with those folks that's seriously the strongest way to make change happen. This is why, again, in the recovery movement, having someone be accountable to you and with you is one of the best ways to move through sobriety. But whatever change you're trying to make, making that public now gives you a certain uh, social currency that you have to work with And this is really powerful for human beings. All right, so fifth step. The fifth step is actually one that the uh, trans-theoretical stages of change emphasizes the most, and you're actually starting to see a lot of this put out in the social world. Um, And sometimes it's called small steps or tiny habits. And this is one that very ambitious people tend to overlook where they go, I'm gonna start this thing and look, I have this huge progress I'm going to make, uh, and it becomes really overwhelming. It's the enormity of the possible. And how we have overcome that is it's kind of a compromise, but starting really small. Doing only what is within your ability. And uh, you see this in counseling, or life, life coaching, or health coaching. Uh, for example, somebody wants to work out and they're like, I'm gonna to go to the gym every week. Well, what happens then is the first day you miss, you feel like you failed. And so instead say, I'm going to go to the gym one day this week, or, uh, you know, I'm going to do an hour long lift. Um, And I actually read about a person who wanted to start the habit of exercise. And so all they did was they went, I have to go to the gym for at least five minutes a day. And at first, all they would do is they would drive there and they would walk in. They'd stand there for five minutes and then they'd leave. And it fulfilled the goal. Now, no movement's really happening yet. But what it's doing is it's rewiring your mental state and it's creating a new norm. And eventually, you show up to the gym and I only have to be here for five minutes. Well, I drove here. I might as well do something. So you do one thing and then you leave. And eventually, that becomes the new norm for you. It's important to set very small steps so that you can gain momentum to make it easier and allow it to exponentially grow. Again, this could feel like cheating, but what you're doing is you're playing the long game here. And remember, it was a long game for you to get where you are. It's gonna be a long game to get to a new norm. The sixth one is a little bit more eh, trivial, invest. You have to justify the change by a fear of loss. And this is where you'll see some people even encourage, put some money on it. Somehow like buy something that is only for this purpose or invest your time to such a degree where it costs you so much to participate in this that you're going to want to see it through. If you have some sort of capital and it doesn't have to just be money, it can be resources, it can be time, it can be energy. Uh, If you have some sort of uh, currency of your life invested in the change you're trying to make, well, you don't want to lose all of that. So you're more likely to do it. But this is how you create your environment to set up and reflect the desired change. And, And it's all about removing and adding external conditions to support the direction that you've decided you want to go. And you need all of that working together. Now, the uh, fourth stage is action. And what happens now is your single decision, it has a foundation to build on because you've created the conditions, you've eliminated other options. In the fourth stage, it's the easiest one to discuss and it's the longest one to do. It's actually doing it. It's going through the daily grind of making this happen. And you have to see that it is a long game. The fifth stage is maintenance. And what will happen is as soon as you begin the process, you're going to notice that uh, different contexts have now morphed, or you're going to notice that there's things that weren't part of the equation that now are. And the reason that maintenance is included as one of the stages is because adding goals and expanding your situation while keeping the infrastructure in place is going to be important because there's stuff that you might not have accounted for. There's also the fear that relapse will happen. And when it does, it might feel like you're starting back at zero, but you've now gained experience that you can use to set up a better system as you go again. So, maintenance is included within that. And this is what you saw in Sweden. They went through this whole process. They made the shift pre contemplation of their situation, and then they contemplated hey, there might be benefits to this. And then they decided to pull the trigger and move into transition. And what did they do? They took years to set up the external conditions, and then they had a plan. And then there was a day where early in the morning, all traffic stopped, changed lanes, all of the new lights and signs that had been set up over time were uncovered, the old ones were taken down, and Sweden began driving on the right side of the road. But it takes all of those steps. It's like planting a garden. When you have this decision you make, this vision, And so you shift into that and you say, imagine what it would be like to have this garden right here. Imagine what that would look like. Imagine what that would do for our household, for the community. But then you have to do the transition. You can't just talk about the garden. You can't just think about it. You actually have to begin burying seeds, setting up an environment, and doing the hard work it takes to pull that off every single day. That's how we change. shift and transition after you've processed the obstacles and you've done that hard work of grounding yourself in a teleological vision that will sustain itself over time. So this has been a guide to changing things. And this is just the surface. I would encourage you to explore any of these individual ideas further, especially if you find yourself Struggling with one aspect of it. But before we move on to different material and keep exploring the whole concept of becoming human, there's one more thing about change that I want to discuss. And it's what came up here in the third uh, stage of the trans theoretical stages of change. And it deals with this long game. And so that's what we're going to go into for our next episode. And it's going to be a bit of a rant but it's something that I think our culture desperately needs to talk about.